0: What is going on? Happy Thursday. Morehead Street's closed. Just a heads up on that. Pete Callender here, Newstalk 1110, 99.3 WBT. No, for real. I haven't been back over around the Charlotte Pipe and Foundry complex in, gosh, 15 years. And uh, got taken on that nice detour today. So what, a tree fell down and made a break for it from the Bank of America Stadium?
1: Yep, someone had to yell timber.
0: Mm, yeah. It wasn't, like a, it wasn't like a tree cutting gone wrong.
1: That's a good question. I I didn't like all I heard was about the tree. I actually had to do the same thing. So like I, I was coming down Graham and I went on Mint Street. I normally make the right onto Moorhead where the where the uh-huh. doghouse is. Uh-huh. And I saw that they had blocked off the street, so I had to go straight past the um, uh, past the doghouse and come back the back way.
0: Yeah. Past Charlotte Pipe and Foundry. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Which is that where they're going to build the new stadium?
1: That's supposedly. <laughs> I mean, it looked like the stadium was still there when I, when I drove past it.
0: True. Stadium is still, stadium is still there. I do not want to uh, send out any in, uh, incorrect information. So welcome to the show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, at, what, 1 o'clock, I think we're going to talk with Mark Meckler from the Convention of States project. Um, I am a proponent of the Article 5 Convention of States. I, I, I like the intent. I've heard the arguments against it. It's not a superficial kind of an understanding that I have of the effort. And so, um, <laughs> the too soon, the reference to uh, caller, what was his name? Steven yesterday. Oh, and I did get, so this is a big day. Yes. Well, yesterday was a big day. Um, I got my first love mail. Yeah.
1: You always remember your first.
0: I do. That's why I, oh, I, I, I forgot to pull it up here. It was on the Facebook and let me see here.
1: Was this your Facebook or the station's Facebook? My Facebook. So there was a message in the in the station Facebook last night too about you.
0: Oh really? Was yeah. it uh, from maybe? Uh, hold on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I believe it's probably the same person. <laughs> so here it is. Because this is, and by the way, this is what I did the last time. Every time I get my first love mail, <clears throat> this is what I call this is what I do. I you know because they obviously want their opinion expressed. For everybody to hear, correct. So, uh, this is from Jason Maybe, who says, "You are the worst host on the air. Argumentative with callers, unwilling to listen, wrong about most topics. Your jokes are not funny, and your voice is worse than nails on the chalkboard." Just being honest. Is that what he sent to the face to the BTP? oh uh, no, this is a different person. Is it Steven or Paul?
1: No. Okay. Uh, this person said the guy who replaced the EIB network isn't worth isn't worth listening to. That's what it says. Uh, he's no Rush Limbaugh. I'm, of course not. I'm tuning out.
0: All right. Bye. Oh, they won't hear that. Yeah, I'm not Rush Limbaugh. He died. I was a huge fan of Rush Limbaugh. I'm in this business because of Rush Limbaugh, but there was only one of him. Nobody's going to be him. So, um, and look, I expect that this this happens. You know all the time and i am a free market kind of guy if you are you know if i if my what was it uh, two, 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 two. argumentative jokes uh, voice is worser than nails on the chalkboard i do not want to be the source of anybody's anxiety or discomfort and so like you really shouldn't listen to me then i feel really, like i don't i don't want to be the source of that kind of pain and anger and anguish i was going to say you have a new slogan for the show worser than nails <laughs> on the chalkboard <laughs> Uh, So I just simply reply. Thanks for taking the time to write and for listening to the show. That's uh... (laughs) I appreciate that. I am also I'm also reminded of the Howard Stern. uh, The lesson from the Howard Stern uh, career and his career, which was that the people who hated him actually listened for longer periods of time than the people who liked him. Correct. Yeah. Not that I'm trying to be unlikable. You know, it. It just comes naturally. Say <laughs> the joke is 52% funnier. That's not a funny joke. But that's why that, I need a rim shot is because, as Mr. Maybe says, I'm, I'm not funny.
1: I felt like, I, I feel like you played that rim shot after you read the actual initial yeah. message two minutes ago.
0: Right. That's the problem with the technology here. So get this. Um, <clears throat> there was a fella. He's actually not in Asheville, but he's, I think, out of Georgia, and um, he posted up on Facebook last night that um, he's doing hiring for um, I think it's like a essentially it's like a flagman type of position road work. Right. So you're out there and you you're you're there to make sure like people don't run over workers. Right. And so this is you get an idea of like the kind of job that he's looking to hire for. And he says hire. He puts out uh, this Facebook post and he's got screenshots of his correspondence with some of these people that are applying for gigs or for this gig from Asheville, and I can personally attest to you that these comments, this sentiment, that is you're about to hear, is accurate. Okay, it is prevalent in Asheville. So he says hiring in Asheville is an absolute joke. Just a few of the conversations I have had with people, uh, he says the entitlement is absolutely insane. For reference, this job requires no actual labor, okay? It's stand there and ensure safety on a one-lane dirt road. <laughs> this, is, this is the job, okay? He says, we are even providing air-conditioned, heated shacks, air-conditioned and heated shacks for them to hang out in, okay? So this is, that's the gig. You're, you're basically going to be in a in a box that's got A.C., and you're there to ensure safety on this dirt road. That's all I know about the gig. Here's one of the uh, the people uh, who write to him, says, I'm interested in the road safety position you are hiring from. I got your number from a friend. And he replies, awesome. We still have positions open. When can you start? So that's the, apparently that's the hiring process.
2: <laughs> it's,
0: it's, hey, I'm interested. Come on board. And the applicant then says, well, I have some questions first. My friend says, the start time is 6 a.m. I can't really do 6 because I have some good friends that I hang out with late at night and waking up early isn't the best for me. Can I work a modified schedule? Best I can do for start is 11 a.m. Do you guys offer a sign-on bonus paid on day one? I promise I won't quit after I get it. Well, that's a red flag. Areas here offer up to five grand for a sign on, so I want at least that. And this is not the only one that asked for that. Newstalk 1110993 WBT. I'm Pete Callender. Here is another example of one of the applicants to a job literally sitting in a shack on a dirt road. This is the job. It's what it requires. You're there to provide safety or security. or I think it's a a safety kind of thing. Like you're there to monitor the road or something. It sounds like a construction gig. And guys hiring up in the Asheville area. He's from Georgia, but I guess the construction company is based out of Georgia, and so he puts the ad out, and he is just amazed at some of the uh, the responses that he's getting from applicants, and here is another one. Do you guys provide a vehicle that I can use for work? First question. The second question. Is the $16 per hour negotiable? So it's a $16 an hour gig, okay? He says, Asheville is more of a $27 an hour to be comfortable. And then he clarifies, just in case it was not clear, a vehicle that I can take home so I can get to work. The the guy who's doing the hiring says, I'm sorry, we don't provide a vehicle to take home. The pay is non-negotiable. The rate is set for comparable pay for the type of work that will be conducted. The applicant then says, how the bleep, Do I get to and from work then? (laughs) And his response is dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And then the applicant says, if you guys don't provide transportation, then if you need me to work, I need $2,500 sign-on bonus on the first day. Who's this sign-on bonus thing coming from? For a... And the guy, so the job guy says, uh, I don't think this is going to work out. Have a good one. (laughs) And then. I did my application to Mike Schaefer all wrong. (laughs) I know, right? Holy smokes. Uh, He says, uh, here's one. My name is Jeremy. I got your number from a friend who said you're hiring. Do you guys offer a living allowance? A living allowance. Is that I thought living wage. That's the first thing I thought when I heard living allowance. And so they say, hey, Jeremy, uh, glad you reached out. Unfortunately, we do not offer a living allowance for this position. And he says, well, I can't work without a living allowance. I can't come to work if I don't have a place to stay. So either I get a living allowance or I can't come work for you. Well, isn't that what you use your pay for? Don't you use your pay for rent? Like you take that money and you use that money to pay for your rent. So you have a place to stay am I taking crazy pills or like that's been the nature of right. The, 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 the trade off here, right? Like I'm going to give you some hours of my life every day and my expertise, and you're going to give me some money. And then I'm going to trade that money to some other guy. Who's going to let me live in his apartment building. Right. Like that's the deal. You
1: just detailed the history of employment.
0: (laughs) This was all pretty straightforward. Um, And so the construction guy says, well, I don't think this is going to work. Well, he says, I I don't think this is the right job, Jeremy. Uh, I wish you the best. And Jeremy says, but I need a job. And he says, well, I can give you one. I just can't give you a housing allowance. I can pay you $16 an hour with overtime, though. And then he says, sign-on bonus? (laughs) What is with these people and the sign-on bonuses? And he says, no, sorry. And the guy says... Bleep that job! This is Asheville. Everyone gives sign-on bonuses. Okay, as one who worked in Asheville and has a spouse who worked in Asheville and knows other people who worked in Asheville, I can assure you, not everybody gives sign-on bonuses. I don't know what these people are talking about, but this is up in uh, up up in Asheville. I imagine it's probably pretty similar. What's really amazing uh, around the state uh, and and the country, I would. Venture to guess it's probably par for the course with people that that are now trying to, like, go back into the workforce. And this is a big problem. Um, This is actually part of um, the North Carolina House just passed its budget yesterday. I watched it, so you don't have to. And um, this was one of the things they talked about was the community colleges. And I've done interviews with folks in the trades over the years, and it's getting worse. It's just getting worse. Um, And the community college, a lot of the classes that are taught, I talked to the owner of an electric or electrician uh, company. I want to say they were out of Lincolnton about a year ago. And he said one of the problems that they had with the community college system, and they ended up building their entire, their own like apprenticeship program and stuff because the community college was still teaching classes based on a model that worked when they had a major employer that needed commercial trained, um, or yeah, uh, like commercial, uh, electricians, not residential. And so he's like, I don't, I, I don't need these guys. Like this is what it was basically a feeder system years ago. It was a feeder system. You get people that are in the community, you train them up and then they go to work for this major employer where they needed a lot of people with those skills. Well, that employer is gone. They closed down or whatever. And now the community college is still teaching people these skills and the owner of the electrician firm is like, I can't use these people. They're trained on all this wrong stuff. I got to retrain them for the stuff I need them to do. So he made his own apprenticeship program. It's a problem. It's a problem. Where are other problems? Well, I don't know. Let's talk to Mark Muller in the WBT News Center, and he'll tell us. Working to buy talk 11 10 wbt pete calendar here 704-570-1110-1800 wbt 1110 and dan welcome to the show hello dan
3: uh, good morning Sarah. And how are you doing i'm today? well how are you that's <laughs> a great day to be me um <laughs> you had mentioned earlier about uh that one kid that was calling in saying everybody in Asheville is offering hiring bonuses <laughs> yeah and these days they are uh, but it's the entry level stuff. It's McDonald's. True. It's Hardee's. Uh, it's a lot of the low level. Get them off the couch. Put down the video games. Set the bong down long enough to pass <laughs> the drug test, and they're giving like F's. I've seen two hundred to a thousand dollars offered on the signs out front of these places. Yeah,
0: I, it's and off. it's usually the corporate. It's the um, it's usually the corporate restaurant chains. Like
3: yes, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's not the it's not like Happy Hill or one of those you know the, right. the mom and pop stuff. It's the uh, the larger ones that are going through. But with everything that's going on, with the enhanced, uh, I don't care what they say, with the enhanced uh, unemployment and all the rest, I know of and have talked to over a dozen people. Why should I go back to work? I make almost as money sitting through here playing video games. Mm-hmm. No, it's... If there has ever been a better argument against a universal basic income, <laughs> this is it.
0: Well, as one who... And and, and, like Milton Friedman talked about the the UBI initially, right under Reagan, this was the idea was you take the UBI and it replaces all of the other welfare programs. That was the idea. But of course, once they started implementing it with the earned income tax credit and they realized that the Democrats would never unwind all of the other government programs (laughs) and then it just became additional, it's like, okay, put the brakes on this no more. Um, But yeah, that's uh, and, and look, this is why I. I am a supporter of, you know, federalism because it gives all of the states the ability to act as laboratories to see what works and what doesn't. There are some cities that have tried this as well. Um, and so, yeah, if this is the way people are going to behave, then, all right, we don't do it anymore.
3: Yeah, that's the problem is it's the uh, – nobody seems to get to the let's not do it anymore because <laughs> it's not working.
0: That's true. Well, it is – yeah, like all government programs, it just, it just needs more money. That's all. Just yeah, this, throw some more money work. at it. Yeah.
3: It'll work this time, right. I promise. <laughs> That's
0: right. but, uh, uh,
3: I am I, very glad you got another job, sir. It is good hearing you back on the air.
0: Well, thanks Dan. I appreciate that. Take care. Uh and I guess are you well, hang on, are you uh, I'm I'm guessing you spend some time in Asheville knowing uh Happy Hill?
3: I live in Candler and my go. office the one of the office spaces I have is 250 yards from Happy Hill.
0: <laughs> That's a great restaurant. I appreciate it, Dan. Yeah. All right, see you. Yes, sir. Have a great day. Um, Let me see here. I got this uh, tweet from Silly Relic, who says, Look, I don't pick these names. They make their own names. When they don't have to pay rent, either because they're living with their parents or because of the eviction moratorium, and they get unemployment on steroids, what the heck do you think they're going to do? The progressives want the taxpayers to pay these lazies a UBI. It'll only get worse from here. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, well, there always was. I mean, I've said this for years. Asheville is a case study in long-term drug abuse. It's like um, like when I was in college down at Winthrop in Rock Hill 20-something years ago. Gosh, I guess it's probably now almost 30 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, when I was down there, you know, you had the house, the rental, this old mill house, and uh, you had a couch on the front porch, and, you know, you had the keg and whatever, and, like, you just kind of lounged around, you know, that kind of deal. And it's almost like that is all of Asheville. But people never leave. It's like they just stay on the porch or stay around the keg for like 30 years. That's, (laughs) I know it. uh, there's, I mean. uh, Did you bring your keg with you? (laughs) That's right. Well, no, the joke in Asheville is um, come to Asheville, bring your own job. Yeah, that's, that's the joke. There's. I mean, it's it's the size of Rock Hill. Asheville's the size of Rock Hill, but it doesn't have Charlotte right next door to it. So, yeah. Um, all right, let me go over here. Jake has been holding on. I was curious how long Jake would wait. Hey, Jake, welcome to the show.
4: Well, I'm, I'm glad you're curious. Let me put down my trowel and sheetrock bud uh, so that I can speak to you with a measure of intelligence. My wife and I were listening to you yesterday. Okay. Uh, when you had that unfortunate exchange with first one gentleman and then a second gentleman. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably a little older than most, but uh, my wife, who uh, is probably a much better person than I am, looked at me and said, why is he being so hostile? <laughs>
3: okay.
4: Now, we both grew up in metropolitan New York, New Jersey area, but left there many, many years ago. Um, I would like to suggest to you, and I think you're probably a good person, uh, that you were, in my opinion, very rough on the first caller um, and a little less so on the more enlightened second caller. And the only thing I would say to you is... Um, I hope you reflect on this incident and uh, are able to come away being an even better person than you already are. And I say that from the bottom of my heart.
0: Well, thank you for hanging on to tell me that, Jake. I appreciate it.
4: You have a blessed day.
0: All right. Yeah, you too. All right. So that's a, that was in response to caller Paul yesterday and then caller Stephen. So Paul came on ask why I wasn't covering something which was about the Mike Lindell stuff and it was about the vote rigging and all of that I told him I disagreed with it I didn't think Mike Lindell had any credibility and then Stephen called in and got pretty personal attacked me whatever and that was it so all right and I was hostile well you know if disagreement is hostile then so be it but I will I appreciate the uh the the constructive criticism that Jake offered and the spirit in which he was offered, I will not assume anything about his motives. Uh, I will I will assume that he only wants the best for me. so uh, And it's not meant in any kind of a derogatory or personal attack sort of way because it didn't sound like that. So thank you for the call, Jake. I appreciate it. Um, we do have a guest coming up at 1 o'clock. It is Mark Meckler from the Convention of States project. So we'll... Uh, chat with him in a minute. First, we're going to chat with uh, Boomer von Cannon about some traffic. News Talk Eleven Ten Ninety Nine Three WBT. To go over to the phone line 704 570 1110 1 800 WBT 1110. Here is Rob. Hello, Rob. Welcome to the show. How are you?
5: Hello, this is Roland, not Rob.
0: Oh, Roy. Welcome.
5: Okay, never mind. Oh, uh, the show, Sorry. I'm glad you got wait, the spot. Wait. Well, thank you. You were talking about young people in the workforce. I work for an electrical company out of Fort Mill. We have about 130 employees. I'm a trainer. We have a set up with a builder or an intern program. And what bringing kids out of school into the workforce that do, does not want to go to college and we train them. That's my job to train them. And what you're saying about these people responding to employers is exactly right. They want to know why they can't show up at nine o'clock. <laughs> they want to know why, you know, if they don't call in or show up, why we get mad at them or bust <laughs> at them. Here's my opinion. It's just my opinion. People that are my age parents between 40s, late 30s, maybe early 50s, you have done your children a disservice. You have given them everything. You've given them a $1,000 phone. You've given them brand new cars. And not made them work for it. You've not taught them to go out and work hard for your money. They've just been given everything. Now, maybe not every kid, but that's the major problem. And we're going to deal with this for the next while. This is not going away anytime soon.
0: There was a, um, an auto shop with the guys that I took my car to uh, up in Asheville, and they would tell me the same thing. He said he went to uh, the owner of the shop. He would go to these, like, big conferences with all of the independent owners of the auto um, repair places from around the country. And they would go in, like, every single one of these, like, little uh, the sessions, you know, that they have at these big conventions or conferences. Every single session at some point turns to this exact issue, finding people to be auto technicians.
5: And it's a great deal. I do work 25 years ago. I made $6.50 an hour. First week, I got a 50 cents raise. Now I'm a safety coordinator and, and trainer with mm-hmm. this company, but it took me 20 years to get to this point. They want what I made 10 years ago. Coming in, and I'll say, Why do you think you deserve $16 an hour? Mm-hmm. They said, Well, that's just the start. They, Son, you can't even read a tape measure. <laughs> Why do you think you need $16 an hour? you still living with mom and daddy. Right. <laughs> and, and they don't get it. And I'm not being mean. No, it's, I know. Not, yeah, I know. It's not the kids. It's the parents that that need a wake up call because they have failed their kids. I appreciate the show, man. Let's All right. It.
0: Thanks. Roland, right? It was Roland, right? Yes, sir, that's All it. right. Thank you, Roland. I'm sorry I missed your name up, uh, earlier. Appreciate the call. Uh, this is. Um, this is also a byproduct of, well, the argument over minimum wages and the increase of minimum wage. And people are like, oh, we have to have an increase. Like, no. Well, you realize what you're doing. You're pricing out essentially teenagers. That's usually who gets displaced when you start raising the minimum wage. It's a price floor. And it's like the perfect example of a price floor. And when you raise the price, for, uh, price floor, you end up then losing a lot of the people who cannot compete at the higher wage level and that usually is young people and now they're not getting experience right to go actually out into the workforce how do you end up getting the jobs if you have no experience and you're demanding that kind of money obviously it's insane but how do you get the job you can't so how do you get the experience well you can't because you can't get the job because you don't have experience like, this is what happens when people, these central planner types, they're like, oh, well, we can direct all of this. We know what's best. We'll go ahead and set all of these policies in place and we'll make sure this stuff happens in the manner that we want it to. Let me go over here to Kevin. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing
6: well. Hey, uh, I enjoy the show and uh, I'm calling uh regarding yesterday's phone calls okay you know i listened to uh one of your hall of frame uh predecessors chew a lot of people out but he held his ground and i respected him for that and i still do and you held your ground and i respect you for that we all can't just shy away uh i don't see that you did anything wrong you held your ground you can't go investigating everything that comes across the radio to you because a lot of it is bogus do i believe the election was stolen yes i did is it your place to go investigate it no it's not what you do and plus no judge in the country will touch it so we're stuck with what we've got for the next four years yeah but i enjoy your show and you know people need to toughen up If you call a radio station and you go back and forth with each other that's what it's about
0: but yeah i don't and i don't take any of that i don't take it personally you can't do this job and take this stuff personally. No, so and I, no. And, and I don't ever – I mean, now, that being said, I will engage with people as they engage with me. That's generally how I operate. And if people want to have a policy discussion or a philosophical discussion, I can do that. I'm happier to do that. But if people want to call in and, you know, get antagonistic like the second caller did, like, well, okay, well, I'm your Huckleberry, too. <laughs> I mean, I'll do that yeah, as well. Yeah, I
6: mean uh... – that's how it went you know it went yeah. from zero to well you're the bad guy now
0: right well it's just
6: fine <laughs> and that's not the case
0: <laughs> well i appreciate the kind words kevin thanks for the support i I, and I appreciate that you recognize what what this what the job is and what it is not yeah i'm not a investigative journalist um
6: that's why i tune in every day yeah uh, i catch y'all throughout the day and i don't even live in charlotte i travel to charlotte daily but instead listen to the radio i listen to y'all so well,
0: keep thanks. up the good work man. all right man i right. right. appreciate it kevin um yeah and look Am I going to handle every single phone caller correctly or the best way I could? No, probably not. I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I we had a di- fundamental disagreement. Um, now, the funny thing is, is that I do actually believe, like, on the topic of whether or not the election was manipulated. I mean, first off, I assume there's vote fraud in every election because I'm not, you know, naive. <laughs> right? I mean, Election fraud has been going on since elections were created. So uh, I assume there's some level of fraud in every election everywhere. Now, how much? I don't know. That's why I would very much like to have all sorts of measures in place to uh, prevent as much fraud as possible, but also to track it down and find out what exactly is the impact of various forms of fraud. So we all are working off the same set of data, if you will. Now, that being said, this last election was definitely impacted you can call it rigged if you want, but I'm not talking about like the voting machines and all of that stuff. It was like thumb on the scale, rigged if you will, by the actions of groups like uh, Mark Elias's group, the Democracy Docket folks, the ones that sued North Carolina, which, by the way, that's in the budget as well—a uh, a bill that would prohibit uh, or a measure that would prohibit these kind the, the the kinds of collusive agreements. That our attorney general and the board of elections entered into with Mark Elias in order to change North Carolina election law. Now, my personal belief on that was that they were doing that to till the ground, basically, for when um, they needed the ballots to be counted in certain areas after they lost. Like that's so. So much of this stuff is you, you, you you know, set the table, basically. So after the election is over, now you can go back during the canvas period and you can make challenges. And we saw some of this in the race for North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice. Sherry Beasley's attorneys actually tried to use some of the absentee ballots that had no missing postmarks or whatever. They tried to use that and say, well, if you had it at the Board of Elections on this day, then obviously it had to have been sent before Election Day. So they were even trying to get around that law. Right. So when you change all of the election laws while we're voting, yes, I think you're trying to manipulate the outcome. See, so I I, I do think there was chicanery. I just didn't agree with the kind of chicanery that was being alleged yesterday. WBT. want to welcome to the show Mark Meckler. He is the president of the Convention of States Action. Mark, how are you?
7: I'm good. And by the way, great bumper music because I feel like the <laughs> levy has definitely broken.
0: It does seem, yeah, it, it it builds in anticipation. There's a lot of stuff that's just kind of getting held back, held back, and then it breaks. Yeah, so, and that's actually why I picked the song all those years ago. So, uh, first off, how is the effort going nationally to uh, to get a convention of states going,
7: it's going extraordinarily well. There are five million people now involved all over the country. We have folks in every single state and congressional legislative district in the country. It takes thirty-four states to call the convention. So far, fifteen states have done so. Uh, we have another eight states, including North Carolina, where it's been passed through one house or another. So that if we get those finalized, that would take us across the magic halfway mark. Forty-nine states in total have actually filed the application. So it's going extraordinarily well. It's it's busy
0: out there. And North Carolina's resolution, it's a House Resolution 233. It was passed, actually, out of the House already. I think it was like a 20-vote margin. Um, And it's now sitting in the Senate in the Rules Committee, which is where everything goes to the Rules Committee. And then if the leadership wants to take it out of rules, then they can do so. So I guess that's where the pressure needs to be applied, if that's going to happen before the end of the legislative session.
7: Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. Uh, the, the question really is the leadership. I know for sure 100% we have the majority of the caucus with us. I would say we're still a few votes shy of passage, but by far we have the majority of the caucus. You know, the question is uh, folks like Senator Harrington, Senator Berger, Senator Rabin, these are really the keys to to making this happen. I, I would say Senator Harrington super important in this regard, and, and really we're getting kind of non-committal stuff from them. In this day and age, Pete, I got to be honest with you. I don't understand it. The levy's broken. The Marxists control the White House. They control the Senate. They control the House of Representatives. They just passed a trillion-dollar boondoggle. They're threatening another 3.5 trillion. It's impossible for me to understand why state legislatures wouldn't want to take a stand against that stuff.
0: Right. So for folks who aren't aware, this is—it's uh, been called, you know, constitutional convention. It's an Article Five convention because it comes right out of the U.S. Constitution, right? Article Five. That says this is how you change the Constitution, and there are – I always feel the need to kind of point out that there are two methods to do this. One is the states, but the other is Congress, right? They can propose constitutional amendments whenever they want, and it runs through the same ratification process. So essentially, like – because I hear this concern that, oh, there's going to be you know a, a convention and it will run away. There will be all these things that get proposed, right? Um, and we can talk about that not being a, a credible um, uh, fear, but – Congress can do this right now if they want to, right? There's nothing to stop them from introducing all sorts of constitutional amendments.
7: No, this is it's crazy talk because Congress is always what I call if they're in session, they are a sitting convention. They right. can propose amendments anytime they want to. Uh, when two-thirds of both houses decide to do it, it goes out to the states for ratification by the same method. Uh, so the question is, who, like, who do you trust more? Do you trust Congress or do you trust the people? I trust the people a lot more.
0: So uh, you've already, in uh, the Convention of States, they've run a mock convention as well to show people how this would operate. But real quickly, uh, what, is the, what would be the purpose? Why is this effort underway?
7: Okay, so the, the basic purpose is a question of who decides. Do we want Washington deciding for North Carolinians and everybody in the country, or do we want folks in the states deciding for themselves? I say we the people, I think most Americans agree with that, regardless of their party, we the people should decide decisions are better made close to the people. So this convention, the way it works is when 34 states make application and those applications have to be the same, you get into convention. And our application is for three different things, is to have a convention to discuss imposing term limits on federal officials, that's supported by 80 to 85 percent of Americans, imposing Things like a balanced budget, fiscal restraints on the federal government, again, supported by 80 to 85 percent of Americans. And the third thing, I think the most important, is imposing scope and jurisdiction restraints on the federal government, saying things like, no, you can't be involved in education or energy or health care or environment, things that the federal government was never meant to do and should be in the state's purview. So the process is when 34 states make application, I said we've had 15 states do it, you get into convention, every state chooses its own delegates, tells them what they can and can't do. You send them to convention, they debate. And then, and this is the funny part about this idea of runaway, they make a suggestion. That's all they can do. That's all a convention can do. They'll say to the states, hey, look, we think you should consider these amendments. And then it takes three quarters of states to ratify any amendment before it becomes part of the Constitution.
0: So one of the other concerns I hear, uh, and you have as well, I'm sure, is that, well, look, the original Constitutional Convention, like they scrapped their governing documents and they created another one so why couldn't this one
7: yeah to me that's one of the most offensive things people say to me it's a terrible slander against the founding fathers those men and independence all the reality is i've read their commissions this is the actual history they were commissioned with commissions that contained the language that said the commissioner has any and all authority to render the constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union and it says any and all without limitation all but two commissioners had that authority. Those two, those two delegations or commissions didn't vote. The reality is it was not just put together to deal with the Articles of Confederation. They were in an absolute crisis, and they were given full authority to do whatever they needed to do. That's not true today. These, this is actually a limited application. That was an open application.
0: I see. And so, uh, as you mentioned, whatever comes out of a convention would have to go back to the states, and then 38 states would have to ratify any amendments. And to me, this is always a point that seems to be lost, uh, particularly among conservatives who are opposed to the Convention of States, because they're afraid, and I understand the fear, like, that the left is going to use this as an opportunity to, you know, repeal the Second Amendment, for example.
7: Right. Yeah, and so it takes 38 states to ratify that. The inverse math is even more important. It takes only 13 states to stop it. Let's talk about the Second Amendment specifically. It takes only 13 states to stop it. In order to stop it, all they have to do is nothing, literally. No vote, no committee hearing, no nothing. That's the easiest thing for a legislature to do. And if we kind of run the quick math, like I travel all over the country. I've been in 48 states in the last couple of years. I've been in the legislatures in most of them. If you, if you just think about it, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Mississippi, Kentucky, Alabama, the Dakotas, Wyoming, all these states where gun rights are a big deal. There's there's honestly at least 26, 27 states where gun rights are fundamentally a very big deal. You only have to get 13 of it to stop it. In fact, today in 15 states you can swing a long gun across your back and sit in the gallery of the legislature. That's (laughs) legal in 24 states. You can carry your handgun in the legislature. The idea that you could get 38 states to ratify this and not find 13 states to stop it. It's just ridiculous fantasy.
0: Yeah. Mark Meckler, the president of the Convention of States action, and you can get more information on the Convention of States at conventionofstates.com. Good to talk with you again, Mark. Uh, uh,
7: Great. And and please tell your folks, call your senator right now. We need you to let them know they want this thing to proceed in the Senate right
0: now, immediately. Yeah. Uh, Best of luck. Safe travels to you. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. By the way, as we speak, the North Carolina legislature is going over some of the redistricting, the rules, basically, that you have to uh, abide. You got to go by when you're doing the maps. And it's interesting to watch the Democrats. And if you know what you're looking for, you can see the way they're trying to uh, to manipulate the redistricting process. But they're the minority party, so they they can't really do a whole lot. I'll, I'll get into that in a second. First, let me get James on the air here. Hello, James. Welcome to the show. How are you?
7: Oh great! Thank you for taking my call. Certainly. Just, uh, just
8: following up on, and I got bits and pieces of it. I've been in and out of the car. The uh, constitutional convention, the process for amendments. The I don't know if you guys talked any about. You know, the Senate used to be an appointed body, and they changed it to an elected body about a hundred years ago. mm mm-hmm. And that is what is really causing a lot of problems we have in this country today that none of that would be taking place if the senate were still appointed the senate was never intended to represent the people of the state it was intended to represent the state's interest at the federal level that's there's a huge difference there and yeah the and the way they set it up you you know that's why they have six-year terms and they're staggered because you need that continuity between those two governments but you also would have a, a stronger state-level influence and less influence by the federal government if the Senate was an appointed body because they would exercise interest for the states instead of the special interest that keeps them in, in uh, office now. Right. They
0: were, they, they were the representatives of the state governments, and that right. preserved and protected the federalist model. But the progressives in, you know, the what 1920s, whatever you're it was, right, they sense. yeah, they ran a whole raft of resolutions and, or uh, amendments to the Constitution. And the problem now is you're never going to go back to the system. And I say that that's a prediction. I understand. But like you I don't see there being enough popular will in a ratification process to go back to an appointed U.S. Senate, you know, right. I mean, can, you can imagine what would happen. Nobody's going to give up the election of their U.S. senators at this. Well, the,
8: the the senators don't want to give it up, right? The elected, but you know, it's the same. It's it as that it is as important a, a theory about self-government and how we're structured as the Second Amendment. Yeah. No, that yeah, and, I, and I agree. We we would have zero deficit spending today, but for an elected Senate because state-appointed senators would never buy into that sort of deficit at the federal level.
0: You would also have way more attention on state politics and state elections, right? Exactly. Yeah. More people would care about who's getting elected at the state level, which also, by the way, that's another reason why maybe some folks at the state level are not too keen on making the change either, because... There's a benefit to kind of flying below the radar, right?
8: That's right. Yeah. But, you know, and I, I, I know it would be hard. I, I hear what you're saying, but you know, I talk to so many people. Nobody even knows that it used to be an appointed body. Right. And and you take the time to explain it to them, they understand it. I think you can sell it. I don't know what you know. It 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 would end instantly all the overreach of federal power in our country. Because that's what's really hurting everything. Is there's yeah. just you know we're we're spending money our great grandchildren are going to pay back and getting yeah. nothing in return for
0: it yeah i agree i think the 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 argument against the repeal of the 17th or i guess or, or to reinstate the uh, the the uh, the appointment of senators repeal the 17th amendment like in order to do that you would have to make the argument that you've made but the opposition to your position would be what that you're trying to destroy democracy. And to an extent, it's correct, right? Like you, you're you trying to remove that from being a democratically elected uh, position. And there's there are good reasons for it, but that would be the way it would get demagogued, right? And you see the way uh, the left makes this argument. Now, I just, it's not, I don't think it's going to be a winning issue. I, you know, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. I, I look at the, the political realities, and I don't see yeah, enough people being I, able to I articulate understand. the argument, let alone believe in it, you know?
8: You know, I, I think you're right about all that, but I still think it should be something that should be talked about, it yeah. should be explained to people so that they understand it better. I yeah. mean, it's the same, it, it, it basically occurred at the same time in our history that the in, income tax yeah. was instituted and we see what happened with the income tax
0: yeah well this was the grand uh, progressive vision right Woodrow yeah, Wilson yeah, that monster yeah, yeah. And, and they they understood they needed control of the federal
8: government you know and it took them a hundred years you know I say all the time you know I talk about compromise well you know people that believe in limited government have been compromising away limited government for a hundred years when are we going back the other way
0: No, it's a great point it's the it's the feeding the alligator with the hope that it eats you last but right. you still get That's eaten. Exactly right. Yeah, you yep. still get eaten. Yep. All right.
8: But yeah, I I, I got up to your show once a week talking about
0: that. <laughs> Everybody should hear this. It's important. Well, I, it's very I, important. I think we've just done it. I think we anyway, just did it. All right. Thanks, yep. James. All right, man. Yep, thank you. All right, appreciate it. Uh, the specific language of the House Joint Resolution two three three. Let me read it all to you. No, I'm kidding. Um, but it, it it basically does three things. It uh, it, it calls for. The convention, these, this Article Five convention, uh, limited to proposing amendments to the U.S. Constitution that impose fiscal restraints on the federal government. So this would be like your taxpayer bill of rights, or uh, which, by the way, the North Carolina legislature is essentially doing. Right, they're they're keeping their spending to you know growth plus plus infi- inflation kind of thing. Um, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government and limit the terms of office for its officials and for members of Congress. Those are the three things that all of the states are essentially uh, mirroring each other in their language. So the House has already passed it. It's sitting in the Senate Rules Committee. So if you want to see a convention of states, and by the way, you don't even really need to to get the convention of states going. The threat oftentimes is enough to prompt some action at the federal level. Um, Here's some action. It's in the WBT News Center and Mark Muller. News Talk 993 WBT. Redistricting is underway. Let's go into the number. No, I'm not going to do that. It's it is really important, redistricting. It's a really important part of our system. Um, but I know people's eyes glaze over, my eyes glaze over, and there's because it's just a lot of numbers, and numbers are terrible on the radio. You don't really don't want to go into numbers and math and that sort of stuff. But what the legislature is doing now, because today. Um, I guess I think it happened about half an hour ago. They released the census, released the numbers from the census. And so we were waiting on uh, those census numbers in order to uh, now start drawing up the legislative maps and the congressional maps. Right. And just a heads up for people who are like gerrymandering is terrible and it's everywhere. Like just a heads up. The Senate is not gerrymandered. Right. Statewide races are not gerrymandered. Sometimes they get a little ahead of their skis on their anti-gerrymandering arguments. Okay, Gerrymandering is when you draw lines to benefit your own political party, right? And and that's kind of the, the funny thing about gerrymandering is like it's sort of like the old pornography ruling, like I'll know it when I see it, you know? Because some people, they can draw maps and they can argue that they're not gerrymandered and then uh, the political opponents can come in and say they are gerrymandered and just look at them. And you can, I mean, you can't just look at a map and say that's definitely a gerrymander because there are all these rules that are in place. Things like in North Carolina, for example, you can't split counties. Right? Like you, you unless you're trying like you can't say half of one county goes into half of another county. When you you want to try to keep all the counties whole except in rare occasions. Now, like Mecklenburg County, we have so many people that you can break it up into different districts, but you can't You can't just say, I'll take a tiny little chunk of Mecklenburg and a tiny little chunk of, uh, you know, Cabarrus, and I'll make a district out of just those two in order to give myself a seat. Like, you got to keep counties whole. um, And for a long time, thank you, Democrats, you could use partisan affiliation in order to draw the lines. And you could use, this was another thing they would do, is look at last election results. And you could know how many people in a particular area— in a county, in a precinct, because now you can get all this data, right? It's all real granular. Uh, So you can look at all this data and say, okay, uh, I will draw a district that voted for Donald Trump. And that basically guarantees that a Republican will win that district, right? And now the rules, thanks to Democrats who sued to get all of the rules undone, these are the rules that they built in North Carolina for decades. Again, for folks who are new to North Carolina, the Democratic Party was in control of this state for over a century, almost a century and a half, okay? They had complete control, and except for, like, one or, no, two Republican governors before Pat McCrory, And when the last Republican governor before McCrory, uh, Jim Martin, when when he got in, they immediately started stripping him of power. <laughs> so that's how Democrats behaved for over a century. And so when Republicans finally won... Under maps that Democrats drew, just always need to point that out as well, the Republicans did not gerrymander themselves into victory. They beat the Democrats in 2010, and it was a census year, and so then all the numbers came out, All the and then they got new maps. And the Republicans, you know, fresh from being backbenchers— <laughs> And uh, marginalized. Now they were in control. They had the power. And they began enacting maps and legislation. And look, they took a pound of flesh from their political opponents. Absolutely. And uh, who who was the famous quote? I think it was Jim Hunt, politics ain't beanbag. Right? This is is what they used to say to Republicans. But then Republicans said it back to them. But now, like the media, after what are we now in 11 years, the media kind of views the Democrats, if not, you know, simpatico, like these are our fellow uh, travelers on the progressive path, but they also kind of view the Democrats as, you know, the underdog because they're not in power, but they were in power. And the rules that the Republicans drew the maps using were the Democrats' rules, right? So they used them to their own advantage. And then Democrats sued, and then we had the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and the Democrat appointed judges. They turned around and said, uh, well, you know what? I know we ruled this other way when the Democrats were drawing the maps, but now the Republicans are drawing the maps. We don't want to rule that way again. So we're going to undo that. And this prompted Sam Alito to be like, what are you guys doing? Like your precedent here, you're just tossing out precedent. I was, I was in agreement with Samuel Alito's dissent in that case for whatever that's worth. So now they're doing the redistricting again. We got the census numbers came out today and, um, they were going through today on uh, like what kinds of uh, rules should we use to draw the maps. And I'm looking at this the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. This was the organization that Anita Earls founded, I believe. She is now a member of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, Anita Earls ran in the last election cycle. She was the beneficiary of, she beat the Republican, but remember, she was the beneficiary of uh, that. Democrat who registered as a Republican so he could run as a Republican and split the GOP vote, his name was Chris Anglin, and um and uh the de- the Republican incumbent lost. So now you've got this so, uh, Southern Coalition for Social Justice Warrior on the Supreme Court of North Carolina and this organization is big into trying to get, you know, the quote independent redistricting commissions established, which, by the way, if past history is any indication, these things are not independent, right? It is an inherently political process. It always has been. And just because you make it, quote, independent, does not remove the politics from it. You can't. It's impossible. And, you know, the big, you know, case study in in this and the scandal that came out of California when they went to their independent redistricting committee the republicans were completely flat-footed and pro publica to their credit they did a huge expose on this and what they discovered was that democrats rigged the entire process they created fake organizations because there's this um and this was one of the the things that they wanted in our rules which was communities of interest is what they call it <laughs> right so you have a community of interest so you can use this criteria to draw a map And so what the Democrats did was they would create these fake groups that said, oh, you know, we're all for protecting this particular beach. Right. And this is our community of interest. And then in California, they had a commission that was made up of people who had no experience in politics because they didn't want anybody with any kind of political understanding to be on the commission. And so what happened is they got rolled. They got rolled by the actual partisans who were pretending to be just communities of interest. They then used that criteria to create the maps and how many republicans are elected out of california now right there's like mccarthy and like one other i think no i think there were like four yeah out of the entire state of california that's what happened and so when you start looking at what the southern coalition for social justice is advocating for in north carolina's criteria it's all the same criteria that they tried to get out in, or they did get out in california yeah. Now, our traffic is not as bad as it is in California, but I think it's probably pretty close. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The calendar here in the next hour, by the way. i got some audio from the debate that occurred on the North Carolina floor of the House over the budget. Some of the high points. Well, you know what? I take that back. We'll give you the low high, the, the low points, the low lights. No, I'm kidding. We'll we'll get we'll do the better parts of it. Um, this though uh, is occurring right now or just recently wrapped up uh, the redistricting criteria, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it is really important because North Carolina has been sued somewhere in the neighborhood of about forty thousand times for its legislative maps, dating back to when Democrats were drawing them. I mean, like almost all of the Supreme court rulings (laughs) on redistricting criteria is North Carolina centered. So, uh, this is a press release. It it comes from Senator Warren Daniel, who's a Republican from Burke County, and he is the co-chair of the Senate redistricting committee. He said, quote, North Carolina has been the epicenter of redistricting lawsuits for decades. It's time to put the last 30 years of litigation behind us. Okay. That's not happening. Um, And he says that the criteria that because remember, Democrats sued and this was from 2019. They had to do new maps because the Democrats won because the Supreme Court of North Carolina after the U.S. Supreme Court refused to take up this issue of whether you could gerrymander, whether it was allowable to gerrymander for partisan uh, reasons, partisan redistricting. Um, The Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court said you can't we're not going to touch this. But you state Supreme Courts totally could, at which point then Democrats immediately ran to state court. They filed lawsuits. The state court, state Supreme Court, controlled by Democrats at the time, they ruled in favor of the Democrats and now are not allowed to use partisan affiliation, partisan information, partisan data, political affiliation. Can't use any of that now to uh, to draw the maps. And so basically everybody has to pretend that they don't know anything about how certain counties and cities and areas vote. Because by the way, like the lawmakers, they know where they get votes. They know which precincts have what amount of votes, like, because the data is available. You're just not allowed to use it when you draw the line. But you could like totally look this stuff up and then like, you know, walk into the Uh, The committee room where they're doing this, they got the computer set up and you could totally go in there and be like, oh, I think we should move the line over to this street, you know, whatever. So the nonpartisan redistricting effort. Now, here's a bit of a problem for Democrats, because last year when they did this, Dan Blue, the Senate leader, the Senate minority leader, Dan Blue, Democrat from Wake, he praised the maps at the time. He he said at the time that they were fair and nonpartisan. He said that. And so now the Republicans today, they're like, well, let's just use that criteria again. And now you got Democrats that have to figure out an argument for why we shouldn't do the same thing we just did that the Democrat leader said was fair. (laughs) Now, because always keep in mind, when Democrats say they want fair maps, that means they want maps that benefit them. That's what that means. That's the code, okay? The nonpartisan criteria that got adopted today in both the House and Senate is election data. Partisan considerations and election results data shall not be used in the drawing of districts in these plans, okay? So cannot use them. That's what happened today. Now, here was, I mentioned earlier, the communities of interest, they started getting movement on this. There was an amendment that was discussed by Democrats that would preserve communities of interest, like campuses, for example. Right. You, you, you don't want to split up a campus. You don't want to split up a college campus into different districts to minimize the college kid vote. Right? This is a very important thing for Democrats. Right. Even though, like, my opinion is you should not be voting as a college student on campus for that locality you shouldn't when i was a student at winthrop university i was sending in like i was mailing by uh absentee back to new york well for the one presidential race and then i don't think i voted for a while which i'm sure the folks liked (laughs) because i wasn't voting right um i don't even know yeah but at that point i was becoming republican and so i would have you know been voting republican in those um uh in those local elections But I don't think that students have the residence requirement. Now, if you are a local resident going to the college, then yes. And when I moved off campus and now I'm a local resident, then yes, I can vote in those local elections. I live, I rent an apartment off campus. And I think that's okay. But if you're living in the dorm, no, I don't think that's okay. I don't think that counts as your legal residence. Now, I know that's not what the law says, but that's what I think. So uh, this communities of interest criteria. And they're like, this is what the Democrats were arguing. If we do this criteria, this is going to help us uh, uh, not spend millions of dollars defending ourselves and defending these maps from lawsuits. So let's just do this criteria that we really like and we really want. Otherwise, we're totally going to sue you. (laughs) This was their argument today. Um, Well, okay, not Democrats, but just all the nonprofits that are Democrat adjacent, if you will um senator natasha marcus from charlotte there have been she says there have been more public comments in favor of the communities of interest criteria than any topic (gasps) really more people sent in emails to the lawmakers about the communities of interest isn't that remarkable that's kind of the very same thing i just outlined that happened in california It's almost as if there was some sort of a coordinated effort to try to make this thing happen. This is what Democrats, by the way, this is what they will do. This was what was at stake in our last election. This is why it was so important. I was very, very worried. Democrats take control of the General Assembly in a census year. And this is why there was such a huge push for them to win as many of these legislatures as possible around America was because they would be put in charge then of drawing the maps. And this is what they would attempt to do. This is what they will attempt to do, by the way, if they get their way with the, quote, independent redistricting commissions. They're they're just going to create a buffer, a way to inoculate themselves from any of the political fallout or damage that they may otherwise incur if they're the ones drawing the maps. That's what this is about, because they're still going to want the majority. They're still because this is their argument as well during the earlier uh, uh, lawsuits. They were making the argument that based on partisan affiliation, so how people are registered to vote in North Carolina, right? There are like way more Democrats than Republicans. And now like unaffiliated are actually outnumbering Republicans too. And so what they look at that and they say, we should draw maps based on registration or, okay, fine. because a lot of unaffiliateds vote. Republicans we will do, how about this? We'll do maps based on electoral outcomes. They were making the argument that North Carolina's congressional delegation should be split in a proportionate way with the way people vote. That that would be fair, which of course ignores the candidates, who the candidates are, and that matters. Candidates matter, right? They absolutely do. News matters as well. We'll take a listen to that up next on News Talk 1110-993-WBT. News Talk 1110 993 WBT. Pete calendar here. Welcome to the third hour. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. The North Carolina House gave initial approval late yesterday. Well, it wasn't that late. Come on now, Gary Robertson at the AP. It was like eight o'clock. Um, and uh, this was approval for a two-year budget. That's how North Carolina rolls. We do a biennium. We do a two-year budget. Uh, The first year or the the budget is done in the quote long session and then there's a short session next year and they come back for a shorter period of time. Exactly. Shorter period of time. And they'll make adjustments if they have to. You know, like last year they had to because of covid. Um, But that's it. Usually like the two year budget. That's what it is. Um, Republicans who wrote the legislation touted its teacher pay hikes, its income tax provisions and the massive infrastructure spending spree the chamber voted 72 to 41 that by the way is a veto proof majority now whether or not these democrats all you know stand firm if it were to get vetoed um that will remain to be seen and that's actually after you got to go through a conference committee so where it is now the senate has done a version the house did their version yesterday and that's what we're going to listen to um and then the conference committee will get together between the Senate and the House, and they'll hammer out the differences. The governor, according to the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, he said this yesterday, that the governor uh, will be a part of that conference process because we have not had an actual budget, you know, a new budget passed now in two years because the governor keeps vetoing them and trying to use the veto in order to get stuff that he wants, and the legislature won't, Budge and so then, and the Democrats won't override his veto, and so we just revert back to the previous year's budget. And like last year, or the last time that he vetoed the budget, the governor did, um, he gambled. He gambled with teachers, and he had the backing of the teachers' union, so he had the political cover to do it. But he used teachers as pawns, as leverage, or as chips, if you will. He used them as chips in this gamble. To say expand Medicaid and give teachers like this, you know, 10 percent raise or whatever it was or 15 percent raise. You got to give them this raise and expand Medicaid. And if you don't expand Medicaid, that was really the the linchpin that he was trying to demand the General Assembly expand Medicaid. And the General Assembly said no. And so he vetoed the budget and he thought that that would exert enough pressure on the legislature. But they didn't budge. And when there was no budget agreed to, we just continued on with the old budget. And that's why teachers didn't get the pay raises. And then, of course, you know, Republicans blamed Cooper and I do because he's the one who made his approval contingent on one item. And look, this is sort of like voting. You can be a single issue voter if you'd like. Right. You can say I'm only going to vote on like this is the case in, you know, for uh, pro-life, a lot of pro-life voters like that's their animating issue. I get it. That's fine. And like I, I don't think I could ever actually vote for somebody who's, you know, like pro-abortion. Like I'm a Planned Parenthood. I could never vote for somebody like that. But I like to think that there are other issues I would weigh. But I'm probably more in the camp of almost a single-issue voter on that. Um, but that's what the governor was doing with the Medicaid expansion, and I think he thought he was going to be able to use it in the election. This was going to be a big thing for him in the election because in 2020, the early polling was showing that care was a big concern for a lot of Americans and I think he and I well I know he did. he tried to use the uh, Medicaid expansion as a surrogate or a proxy health care argument and it didn't really work. I mean he did win, but it didn't really work. Um, there were a number of other reasons going on I think why Cooper ended up doing as well as he did against Dan Forrest. I am of the belief that Dan Forrest became the anti well he was he was the anti-mask candidate. And saying masks don't work. And that, that wasn't a popular opinion at that time. And uh, whether, you know, whatever it is, the, the survey show now. Uh, but back then, that wasn't a popular opinion. But also, he then would not explain why he came to that conclusion. He would not make the case, really. And I thought that that was a mistake. I thought, like, if you're going to make that argument, if you're going to say masks don't work, then uh, you, should, you should explain that to people. But he didn't want to, and I think, it, I think it hurt him. Anyway, like, what do I know, right? Just a radio guy. Um, Dallas Woodhouse, he's the former uh, executive director of the North Carolina Republican Party, and now he works for Carolina Journal. And he says the uh, North Carolina House passes the budget with the narrow veto-proof majority uh, with five Republicans and one Democratic absence. So five GOP. One Democrat, were not there. But if you add in those five Republicans and then you count the missing Democrat as a no vote, that would be a 77 yes vote. And that would be a veto-proof majority, even without the, uh, that's five above the veto-proof margin. House Democratic leader Robert Reeves, he said on Twitter that uh, at the press conference that he says, our commitment to work together with all the stakeholders, including the governor, remains, we want to craft a budget that works for every North Carolinian. So right now, everybody is playing nice. Everyone's like, we want to be a part of the process. We want to have a seat at the table. We're not just going to, you know, vote no, just to vote no on all this stuff. Of course, then most of the Democrats did just vote no. Um, But the budget itself was a $25.7 billion. And then next year, it would be almost a billion dollars more. It contains several billion in cash for um, erecting and repairing government, is how the AP phrased that. I'm not sure why. Uh, as well as university and K-12 buildings, expanding broadband to rural areas and fixing aging water and sewer systems. Uh, the Senate budget that was approved back in June is different. Um, it's going to go to conference. Um the, or Sorry, the Democrats say that the GOP budget plan cut corporate taxes too much, that it left out Medicaid expansion, again, and failed to adequately address a judge's directive to boost public education and funding by hundreds of millions of dollars annually in order to comply with this judge's order. This is the Leandro case. I've covered this in, uh, on the weekend shows that I was doing on BT for the last year and a half or so, the Leandro case. This was a case that went to the Supreme Court in North Carolina, and Judge Howard Manning said that the state is obligated constitutionally to provide a, quote, sound basic education. Fun fact here, the legislature was never included in that lawsuit. <laughs> they were not a named defendant. And so you got these school districts that have and the Board of Education that have been defending the state, and the attorney general, because that's what the AG's office does. They've been defending the state against these plaintiffs who are like, "We need more money for education." Well, guess what? The board of education believes too. Guess what? The AG's office believes too. All right? They want more money for education also. So everybody's kind of on board with the concept. So this judge just recently said, um, "Hey." I'm going to direct the state General Assembly to spend a certain amount of money on education, and if they don't, I will force them to do it. This is how we're going to get a constitutional crisis in the very near future. So looking forward to that. Just like right now, I'm looking forward to hearing what Boomer's going to tell me about the traffic. News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT. Time now for everybody's favorite game. Will the audio clip play? (laughs) Um, I've got audio from the House debate. This was up in Raleigh. The House of Representatives going over the budget. And, uh, look, everybody knew this was going to pass because it's a Republican budget and they have the majority. So uh, Democrats basically got up and they, you know, they made speeches Some of them completely unnecessary. Reminds me of the old axiom, you know, everything has been said, but it hasn't been said by everybody yet. And so we're going to have to hear everybody say it. So Representative Marsha Morey, is a Democrat from Durham, and she's a former judge, too. She said that the budget includes policies that do not belong in a spending package. There we go. No, it's not
2: playing. And we have introduced in the House 12 bills... To limit the governor's executive authority during emergencies. Yes. Twelve bills. Yes. Some have stayed in rules. Many have been debated. Mm-hmm. Reopen our restaurants, reopen our gyms. Yes. Yep. On and on and yep. on. And yet again, we have in our budget take away the governor's executive powers unless you get consensus by the Council of State. Yes. Give them notice 48 yep. hours. Council of State must give concurrence, if Mm -hmm. they don't, expires in seven days. Yep,
0: that's a good bill.
2: Any executive order expires in 30 days unless approved again by the Council of State.
0: Yep, good bill.
2: We have a separation of powers. True. People elect the governor as our executive officer in the state.
0: That's true, and uh, just to pause real quick, they also elected nine other members of the Council of State. See, the governor is a member of the Council of State. But Democrats are playing this game where, like, the governor's the most important person ever. Actually, not really the case. In North Carolina, not really the case. North Carolina has a very strong, like, for you look at the cities. It's a council manager form of government. They did not want, when the North Carolina Constitution got redeveloped after the Civil War, right, and then again in, like, the 70s, they did not want to vest a lot of power in one person, a.k.a. the governor. And so they have the Council of State. We've got nine of these seats. And every time I should have, I I should have had the list in front of me. There are 10 seats. Let's see if I can get them all. Actually, I'd be curious to know if Ryan can get them all. No, you probably can't. To be fair, he's not a North Carolina native. Well, neither am I. But all right. So you got the governor. You got the lieutenant governor. You got the attorney general. Then what? Secretary of State, agriculture commissioner, treasurer, auditor commissioner of labor superintendent for public instruction and let's see now i've forgotten all the other the nine that i ran through and i'm drawing a blank on the 10th it's the other say do i say insurance commissioner no that's it that's the 10th insurance commissioner so those are... wow thank you now that soundbite worked um so 10 statewide elected offices and by the way The top, I I will not say vote-getter because I hate the term. It's just cumbersome and awkward. I am working to make votainer the word for the person who gets the most votes in a crowded field, right? So the top votainer in the last election was not Governor Cooper. It was Steve Troxler, the agriculture commissioner, a Republican. And in fact, Republicans have six of the ten seats on the Council of State. And... When you're drawing up pandemic response regulations and such, do you think it might be of benefit to, I don't know, talk to the guy who's in charge of, like, the largest sector of our industry or industrial sector of our state? Like, do you think he might have some some advice, some, I don't know, insight that he could offer about, hey, these rules and their impacts on, just to pick a completely random industry and agriculture but let's just say meat processing. Do you think he might have some ideas about that? Do you think the labor commissioner might? Hey, this might have an impact on labor. Or how about the state treasurer? Do you think the guy in charge of the money? Do you think he might have some ideas about the impact of your regulations? Hey, maybe we should sign off on this stuff or maybe we shouldn't, right? Maybe? about the auditor? I mean, I can do this. The the attorney general, a Democrat. I mean, I could do this with every single seat. Because I could do it 10 times. Right. (laughs) Because that's the whole point of the Council of State. And that's what this legislation would do, would be to say, hey, Governor Cooper, your power is not limitless. And it doesn't last forever. It's not indefinite. You have to go back to the Council of State. Because when they put this Emergency Management Act on the books, nobody contemplated a year and a half of a pandemic, people they put it on the books contemplating a hurricane, flooding, tornado, right? Your 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 you know the, the the regular ways that Mother Nature tries to kill us. Those were the things that people were thinking about. They weren't thinking about a pandemic that's gonna lock us down and have the governor come in and tell people like literally what they should be wearing. He's going to come in and say, you cannot make a living. I'm going to close every single business. This is the heart of the matter of the lawsuit that the Pacific Legal Foundation has filed and is continuing to pursue against the governor. These limitless and indefinite powers. And so what the legislation is saying is, no, you don't get to do that. You have the ability to issue an emergency order without any concurrence from the Council of State. You can do that for an immediate action. Seven days. You got seven days. Then you got to come to the Council of State if you want it extended beyond the 30 days. So you have seven days to act. It can be in place for a month. But then you got to keep coming back to us, and you got to keep getting concurrence from the Council of State. And by the way, not for nothing, but do you think that maybe there would be some more buy-in from more people if it was viewed as more of a bipartisan effort that the governor undertook at the beginning and throughout this process? Do you think maybe that, have, that would have had a positive impact? On our current state of affairs. I do. See, so I got through half of the first soundbite. I only have seven more. I pulled all these soundbites. All right. Next up, this is Representative Marsha Morey, Democrat from Durham County, and she's a former judge. She's against the budget. She says policy doesn't belong in the budget. And um, she mentioned first the Emergency Management Act. But there is another policy that's in the budget that she doesn't like. Will it play? Will it play? No. Wait. There we go.
2: The second main issue and the last is what we're doing with the Attorney General. Once again challenging, and I think unconstitutionally, his authority no longer can our Attorney General file amicus briefs in court unless he gets approval by the Council of State. Never been done. New policy provision limit his abilities and powers. And the other main one is Attorney General, now he can enter into settlements for the people of North Carolina in court. Nope. He cannot enter into any collusive settlement unless it is approved by the Speaker, and by the President Pro Tem, right. the Attorney General is elected by a statewide vote and we are saying he has to limit his powers yeah. to enter into agreements yes. by two individuals who are elected by about 30,000 people.
0: Yes, that's correct.
2: I think these are unconstitutional provisions in this budget. No. These are big policy issues. I applaud a lot of the money issues. I applaud what we're doing, as my colleagues have said I won't get into. But these policy issues mm-hmm. that fundamentally are changing our Constitution and I think will be challenged in court is a reason enough to vote against the budget.
0: Okay, so uh, first off, I apologize for the hiss that's underneath the audio. That's the legislative feed, and she was not uh, holding the mic very close to her mouth, so I had to boost up the volume. Anyway, I... Um, She is correct in that this would fundamentally change the nature of the relationship that the general or the attorney general has with the General Assembly. And that's a good thing, because, as I mentioned earlier, with the redistricting stuff and the election law, this is this was when Mark Elias, the Democrat lawyer, worked for Perkins Coie, the Hillary Clinton firm, right, the ones that were the cutout for the Steele dossier, Mark Elias, who works with the Redistricting Commission, Eric Holder's group. That Mark Elias, who also, by the way, represented Governor Cooper in the recount in 2016 against Pat McCrory. Mark Elias, the representative or the lawyer representing the ACLU that has sued the uh, General Assembly and the North Carolina NAACP that has sued the General Assembly. All of the litigation that Mark Elias has brought against the state of North Carolina, suing the General Assembly... And the, the Attorney General, Josh Stein, Democrat, then settles with Elias. And they cut out the General Assembly. And that's the problem. That's what the General Assembly is looking to fix. If they are a named party in a case, you should not be able to enter into an agreement as the two other parties, one plaintiff, one defendant who both happen to be Democrats and both happen to agree with each other on what it is you're trying to accomplish, what your agenda is. And they all got together and agreed to a settlement. And they cut out the General Assembly. The General Assembly being a named defendant in the case. So, General Assembly says, you know what, let's not do that anymore. We don't like that. So from now on, if you want to behave like that, Attorney General Josh Stein... You now have to go and get our approval for any kind of a settlement like that. If You're going to enter into these deals. You need council of state approval. You need our approval as a defendant. That's what she's talking about. And that's what Democrats are opposed to. Think about that. I mean, is that fair? Is that fair? If you are a, you're a defendant in a lawsuit. And your co-defendant, like let's say it's Ryan, producer Ryan, and me, we are listed as defendants, and Ryan's best friend sues us both. And then settles with Ryan to make me pay. Is that fair? Of course not. Most people recognize this. And that's what the General Assembly assumed, that most Democrats recognized as well. But, joke's on us, (laughs) they don't. And so now we need this particular uh, piece of legislation. Now, I will say this. Putting this kind of policy into the budget, I think, is a mistake. I do. I think it's a mistake. I think it gives Democrats a reason to vote no. I think it gives Governor Cooper a reason to veto. And maybe that's intentional. I don't know the, like, I'm just looking at it from the outside, and I'm thinking, like, why would you include these things if, unless you're trying to induce a no vote? Now, maybe Democrats know that they cannot stop this budget from being passed because they don't have the votes. And so maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, heck, maybe they could vote yes, right? Maybe you could vote yes, claim credit for the good stuff, for all the positive things. There are Democrats that are voting yes that did vote yes on it. So maybe you just do that so you can claim credit. Um, this was the statement, though, from the North Carolina Democratic Party. They said the proposed budget contains provisions that would strip the North Carolina State Board of Elections and the Attorney General to expeditiously settle lawsuits related to our elections. And see, the, we have to move fast. We can't possibly, you know, include the legislature in this as if you need, like, legislative approval for this. All they're saying is you got to get approval from the Speaker of the House and the Senate President Pro Tem, the leaders of those bodies. And if they don't, agreed to the settlement, then you don't get to do the settlement. They also say, additionally, they're trying to sneak $5 million to implement a voter ID law that is currently tied up in court. The $5 million is for the mobile ID unit, okay? <laughs> this is literally a vehicle that's going to go to the homebound and the lazy people's houses to give them free IDs, because that's what voter suppression looks like in North Carolina. <laughs> we spend five million dollars to give people the free ID from the comfort of their own home. This is being attacked by the Democrats and by who else was it? The uh, was it the ACLU? Let me see here. Oh no, it was Stacey Abrams' group. Yeah, Stacey Abrams' group. She and the uh, the far left uh, far left activist groups. Uh, This is according to the press release from State Senator Warren Daniel again, uh, saying that legislators included in a budget proposal $5 million for the mobile unit, even though the program directly responds to their own complaints, Stacey Abrams and far-left activists slammed the free mobile ID unit. The Southern Coalition for Social Justice, which purports to advocate for voting rights, said that the Free ID program is an attack on elections. The League of Women Voters called the Free ID program an attack on voting. These people are not serious. They're not uh, behaving in good faith. They're not honest brokers. People should stop listening to them.
9: <music> News Talk
0: 1110, 99.3 WBT. The North Carolina House gave initial approval to its two-year budget. Senate has another version. they got to hammer out the differences in uh, conference committee. But I want to play this clip. This is Representative Pat Hurley from uh, Randolph County. Um, she said that when she first got up to Raleigh, Republican Party was in the minority. And uh, so she knew that if she wanted anything to get done, she was going to have to get Democrats to help her run her bills, right? And so she did that. And she said every bill that she ran had at least two Democrat Sponsors, and uh, she ended up getting, she says, more legislation passed than any other freshman legislator. Now she's part of the majority party, though.
9: So I know, and it's hard. We learn. We're coming here, we don't know much, but we learn, and we learn that we need help. Now I am chair this year along with Representative Hardister and Representative Torbitt in education. None of you, one person came to me for anything to put in the education budget. I don't know if anybody else went to anybody else, but I would have been glad to help anybody here and try to get something in the budget that you might have wanted, but I have had no idea. So
0: this is, I think, a really important point. When you hear Democrats complaining about what's not in the budget and how they couldn't, you know, affect uh, any kind of legislation or priorities or spending well, how do you expect that to happen if you don't ever go and ask in the first place? I think that's a fair point.
9: And, and getting back to my cursive writing, I did that bill in 2013. Many of those districts have yet to teach that at all, to even offer it. And I have done this time, I have had reports and other special, special provisions. And this year I finally said, well, I'm going to get their attention one way or another.
0: All right, And that is a reference to comments made by Representative Cynthia Ball of Wake County, a Democrat, who said that this budget mistrusts and micromanages our professional educators. We need to treat them as what they are, which is professionals. All right. But we told these professionals keep teaching cursive writing and they have ignored it. And so now the state lawmakers are saying, OK, you're not going to ignore this. And so they're trying to crack down to make the educators do the thing that they've been told to do. You may disagree with that, but that is completely within the purview of the state lawmakers.
9: Sometimes you have to do what you have to do. There you go. But we need to work together and voting no on this budget is not going to get it done. You need to help. If you want something done, come to us. We'll work with you. I don't know at this point. I know it's better than the Senate's budget, but talking and speaking of Representative Cunningham's, so we've got over five billion dollars in COVID help this time. We've also got ninety-five million for rate increases for the providers. With this budget is so much better than the others, and then we've got the money. Do we want to go two more years without a budget that's done by all of us? No. We just need your help, and I hope and pray that y'all will look, through, look at your hearts and look at the big picture. Don't look at, I'm mad at you across the aisle, I'm mad at you across the aisle. It's time we woke up and the life is too short. I have lost six friends in the last month by death. And, and to us, us in here worrying about this mess is crazy. We can work together and we can do stuff for all of our people. And the big picture, we have done a lot for our people this year, and, and we don't need to be up here arguing about it. Please, think it through before you say no. If you feel like you have to, then look at the big picture, and look at your friends, and look at the people around you, the people in your district. You're not here just for you. You're here for all of us. <laughs> Please vote yes on this budget. Thank you.
0: All right, so I don't know if I've ever heard anybody get that emotional um, in a budget debate. Um, I don't know if it swayed any votes. It may have. We shall see. Now, Speaker Tim Moore said that counties are getting funding for critical needs. He addressed Democrats' criticism that it doesn't spend enough for teacher pay raises as well.
10: The raises that are in this budget are significant. They are major raises that are there you're talking right now most state employees uh, are going to get an annual 2.5 percent salary increase per year. Uh, community college faculty are going to get 3.5 percent every uh, both years. We know how our community colleges have been behind and we're trying to restore that. Our universities that that of course I fight for all the time, those faculty members are getting raises, are non-certified. There was someone that called about like the teaching assistants. The teacher's assistants get raises. They get the largest raises they've had in forever. They're getting significant money. We're bringing up those lowest paid employees to where they make $15 an hour. Everyone's getting a living wage. Do you really want to go on record voting against a living wage?
2: Yes, when they you will. vote
10: no yes. on this budget that's what you do now you know and, and and basically what I hear from from those who say they want to vote against it is that it doesn't do enough it doesn't do enough I don't know when's enough then I don't know when's enough this is spending the most money we've ever spent the answer is
0: it's enough when Democrats write the budget that's the answer that's when it's enough and here's representative Logan from mecklenburg really this is going to hang up on me now too
9: i heard you say what more can we do mm-hmm. and you know you can always do more there you go and being a female I always look for more
0: i don't know what that meant i put the rim shot there because i'm not sure it was that a joke i think it was i don't know but the answer is more whatever you are proposing more just more And then when you put a little bit more in there to try to get my vote, my response will be, that's good, but more, 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 more. And then I'm going to beat you up for not funding it at the level that I want it funded at. And then if I win, then I will set the levels. And uh, I know that you won't be arguing for more because that's not your political principles, right? My principles are more. Your principles are limited. Limited government, limited spending, fiscal discipline—right. That's the, that's the deal. It's always it's kind of like if you want a really good example of this, next time you're in a debate or a discussion about uh, either teacher pay or you can be in a debate or a discussion about per pupil spending, ask for the number. Ask what the number is. Right. You usually get no well, because you'll hear this argument like we need to you know spend more per-pupil funding, we need to spend more money on education. It's like, okay, well, first off, like, what do you think the optimal number for per-pupil spending is? What should that number be? And most people that I have found in my experience, the vast majority of people that I ask that question of, they do not know. They don't know what the optimal number should be. And they also rarely know what the number currently is. They don't know. They don't know what the average teacher pay is, and they don't know what an optimal teacher pay figure should be. They don't know these questions. But if you ask them, should we spend more, they say yes. (laughs) But they don't know what the current spend is. That is the nature of the debate. All right. That is a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. And remember, Brett Winterbull is coming up next on News Talk 1110-993-WBT. We'll talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.